So it's a good idea to invite a denominational person, uh, or any guest really, for the, what might be considered the ministry kickoff Sunday. Uh, it, it's kind of like uh, the pre-game uh, pep talk by a coach. And by the end of it all, you're going to be so energized by the Word of God and by uh, the sacrament that you're going to go out and do, 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 and be, be, be. You even heard hints of that in my prayer, right? You're, you're just going to set this world on fire for the Lord. Um, that's what we want time and time again. I'm sorry to disappoint. That's not my uh, method of operation this morning. But if it was, it would sound a whole lot like the world in which we live. Heavy on do, 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 be this, be that, go there, find this, become this. We are saturated with the power and persuasion of action. And it's not completely incorrect. I don't want to dissuade you from acting, from being a Christian. But there's something a little more fundamental, something a little more rooted or foundational to your being a Christian that I think deserves our attention this morning rather than that which I just spoke of. You see, in 1 Corinthians 9, if you just flip a page, you will find Paul, the author of this letter, talking in ways that are heavy on doing, heavy on doing. Look at um, uh, verse 20, chapter 9, verse 20. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. So here's, here's Paul shape-shifting, uh, chameleon-like, becoming all things for all people, doing, doing, doing. And then he goes on in verse 22, to the weak I became weak, to win the weak I become all things to all men. Verse 23, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And then the language gets heavier on doing. Do you not know that in a race all the, race, all the runners run but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training and on and on the doing goes. I appreciated that language more in my 40s than I did today. In my 50s, I'm learning the next chapter. In my 40s, I was still frequently running, uh, participating in triathlons. Um, I've had a, several injuries in a row that have prevented me from anything meaningful. Actually, I got on my bike, had a good bike yesterday, and then I tried to run with it. And this morning, I, bro I broke, I woke up with hardly a back worth moving. I hurt. I hurt from doing. And in the text, it's almost as if Paul grabs the chariot wheel that is driving the action forward and pulls the handle and you can hear the biblical, stop. For you are rooted somewhere different. Although that is the outcome the being and the, uh, the doing and the doing, Paul doesn't want his people to forget the church in Colossae, new, the New Testament Christian church to which we belong, to know this. Uh, chapter 10. I think it's actually a text uh, that we have on the slide too, so um, feel free to use that. 
For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. Okay, you got to shake your head because I was stuck in doing, and now what's this? I'm sitting in a church in Colossae, and Paul's reminding me, even as a Greek believer, that I'm connected to something that happened thousands years ago. And says, this is you. Don't forget that thing that you were a part of back then. What? I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact. And he's not using ignorance in terms of stupid. He just says, I don't want you to stop remembering. I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our forefathers, the generations before us, were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. What sea is he talking about? Well, they were all baptized. They were all baptized into Moses. Baptized into Moses crossing the sea. Hmm. In the cloud and the sea, they all ate the same spiritual food. They ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as examples. So this is an exemplary story to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And then comes a list of, you know, don't be idolaters. Stay away from sexual uh, immorality. Uh, Even the way you eat. Um, Don't test the Lord in your conduct, in your language. Don't grumble, verse 10. And then back to verse 11. Yeah, this won't be on the screen. These things happened to them as examples, were written down as warnings for us. So there again, the example language. This is an example on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is coming to every person. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand under it. Hundreds and hundreds of years later, in the time of the Reformation, something called the Belgic Confession was written. That Belgic Confession is in the back of your Psalter hymnal, and Article 34 is a rather unique one, uh, theologically speaking. It picks up from 1 Corinthians 10, and I'd like to use it as a further preparation for the sacrament we're about to receive. Uh, We'll follow along. It's in front of you. Uh, The wording is slightly modified to kind of keep it crisp from what you read in the back. But if you want more, you can uh, certainly go there later on. Belgic Confession, Article 34. Uh, You folks read the black slides. I read the blue ones. Ready? We believe... By it, we are received into God's church and set apart from all other people and alien religions that we may wholly belong to him whose mark and sign we bear. Therefore, Christ has commanded that all those who belong to him be baptized with pure water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, 
so too the blood of Christ does the same thing internally to the soul. So I know this is about baptism, but there's so much rich sacramental, even Lord's Supper language in here, it kind of suffices for both. So too the blood of Christ does the same thing internally in the soul by the Holy Spirit. It washes and cleanses it from sins and transforms us from being the children of wrath into children of God. This does not happen by the physical water, but by the sprinkling of the precious blood of the Son of God. Our Lord gives what the sacrament signifies, namely the invisible gifts and graces, washing, purifying, and cleansing our souls of all filth and unrighteousness, renewing our hearts and filling them with all comfort. Amen. There's going to be a slide left up uh, during most of the time I'm speaking, which uh, kind of connects Article 34, together with 1 Corinthians 10, and puts out this wacky metaphor of what's going on with the Red Sea. Jesus, our Red Sea, we, through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of the Pharaoh, who is the devil, and to enter the spiritual land of Canaan. And although you kind of read it in a, in a wooden way as you walk through Article 34, this thing breathes with life. And all I want to do is root you in that so that when we have Lord's Supper together, and leave this building, by the Spirit of God, you are changed. Shouldn't be too hard. It's God that does all that work. I don't got to worry about it. So here's where it goes. In this culture of doing, in which we regularly, on shows like American Idol or other places, continue to hear the message that you can be all that you want to be as long as you stick with your dreams and continue to act in a progressive sort of fashion, that you can accomplish that. And in a world in which we post all of our doings on Facebook only to encourage or make others jealous about all the doings that they should be a part of so that they are better people, we pause. Because that temptation exists in the church. Every church looking to do that much more, to be that much greater and more attractive, to develop this really interesting, dare I say, sexy ministry so that others think this is the coolest place. Churches in the hyperactivity of doing refuse infant baptism in a sort of transfer of membership one to another and say, you must do a believer's baptism in order so that your doing matches the membership of this church. And doing of baptism by an individual trumps that which God did many years ago. It's quiet. It's often not noticed, but it happens. And the temptation for you as individuals and myself as a church leader is to continuously do that much more. Do that much more. 
do that much more. Now, I've got nothing against good old reformational Protestant work ethic and working your tail off, but this is something different than that. Paul, in his passion for the church, in his desire to be the kind of constant worker for Christ who breathes the Spirit of Christ in day in and day out, finally gets to 1 Corinthians 10 and says, despite all this doing, don't forget. Don't forget where you belong. Don't forget that place to which you are rooted. And it's a seminal moment in Israel history. It's a moment that defines a nation. Even if you didn't belong to it, by a, by a virtue of the fact that you believe in Christ, you belong to this people group. This is our story. Do you remember when we went through the Red Sea, is what Paul is saying? And it's as foreign to you as it would be to them in Colossia. Do you remember when we did that? What, what, wait, what did we do? Well, that was that time when. A seminal moment. Now, what's a seminal moment? Uh, maybe not appropriate for the pulpit, but the word is related to semen. And it's called seminal by virtue of the fact that by definition, it is, the, it, it is a seed by which life is changed in following or future moments. So, you know, the seed of what God gives to allow birth to happen is similar in that there is a seed moment that will define what life looks like in the future for a person, for a nation, for a nation, for, a, for an entire globe, for a community, for a church. Seminal moments. And Paul says, remember that seminal moment because that's what defines you. So let's, let's take a second. Seminal moments. Seminal moments can be positive or negative. Uh, let's start with the personal ones. Can you reflect in your own mind those moments in your life that have defined you for a lifetime? Some of them are positive. Some of them are negative. In my own life, attached to this church, I don't know if I've ever told anybody in this church in my entire time that I was here. Uh, as a child, where, in this church in which I grew up, I was sexually assaulted by another person who was part of this church. Seminal moment. A week does not go by where I do not think of that. So what do you do with the yuckiness that attaches to yourself about this particular kind of moment? Now, the good part is that, and I would say, um, by and large, this experience was a very good moment. It only happened once. It's not like a life, you know, weeks and weeks went by where this was a regular occurrence. But it happened. And the response from healthy, mature Christian individuals and the church, this church, some of the people which still are here, to say to me that that moment does not change the grace of God in your life, they didn't say it that clearly, but that's what they meant, means everything and has defined my life for years and years to come. Seminal moments, good or bad. And by virtue of the amount of people that we have sitting here today, those kinds of experiences, although that one I mentioned was kind of yucky, uh, they will they will number in, in, in double digits in this place. 
But we all have them. We all have seminal moments. Uh, let's go through a few, a few other ones. I think the building of this church and its refurbishment can be a seminal moment. It will determine, I hope, it will be a seed, I hope, of how ministry is conducted here with fellowship and greeting and welcome and evangelism being a key impulse to how it is that people behave here. Seminal moment. Nations have seminal moments. Uh, when national health care was brought into Canada, seminal moment. Uh, the election of a leader can be a seminal moment that changes the way in which a nation goes. Our entire globe has seminal moments. Uh, France's leader uh, recently said in the G7 summit, uh, I'm not sure if I say Marcon or Marcon, uh, but he said, the lungs of the earth are on fire. What was he talking about? He was talking about the rainforest being on fire. Seminal moments. The seeds by which things could drastically change. And Paul says, back then in the Red Sea, we had our seminal moment. You get what a seminal moment is? So in order to understand whatever this text is about, we got to know what happened at the Red Sea. So let's go there. i got a couple slides. This is the seminal moment. We think about crossing the Red Sea, and we see Charlton Heston uh, with crowds around him standing at the shoreline. Uh, get rid of that image for a minute, although if, if, at least in your mind, you're imagining anywhere from 600,000 to 2 million people, you can keep that part of the memory. Uh, it happened here. This is Egypt. This is the Sinai Peninsula. I was uh, blessed to be able to go there this past spring. And I understand the terror and hurt and harm and oh, the horrible uh, thing that these people had to do in crossing the Sinai Peninsula, crossing the desert to get to the Promised Land. This was not an easy request. Anyway, next slide, please. Now, there is some debate as to where the crossing of the Red Sea took place. Uh, long story, another teachable moment. Uh, I could give you a number of things of the evidence of the particular choice that I have. But if I don't make this choice, this whole sermon falls apart. So I'm going with the one I got. Uh, but there are archaeological and other pieces of scholarly evidence that demonstrate that what I'm telling you is actually true. Um, but others, other scholars can argue, and that's, that's fine. Uh, we'll know in glory. So they start up here, uh, Great Pyramids and so on, and they cross through the Sinai Peninsula. I believe that there, you know, there are two fingers of, of uh, the Red Sea here, the Gulf, Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. And I believe they crossed right here. Next slide, please. And I, part of the reason why I believe it is because there is archaeological evidence there. You'll see bones that have been found in the water. Not, you know, it's, it's not the be-all and end-all proof, but that's part of it. Human bones. Uh, this is a chariot wheel that is upside down and now has coral on it. Here's another one. And then, uh, you know, many, 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 many years old is a marker on both sides of the Gulf of Aqaba that others, many years ago, uh, put up saying, this is the location. So there is history, archaeology, there's a few things that tell us this is the right place. Uh, so have you bought that? Are you completely convinced thus far? Okay, good. Then we can move on. Next slide. All right, so here we are in the Gulf of Aqaba, and we're crossing. You see this? Look, my hand's shaking a little bit. I'm not a surgeon. Uh, you see this little piece of land that juts out right there along the Gulf of Aqaba? That's right there. And typically, the Gulf of Aqaba looks like this. 
and it is about a thousand feet deep. Okay, so from, from here to here, the, the topography, underwater topography, is that uh, it, the, the land is underneath is a thousand feet deep. There's no way two million people with aged seniors and camels and the family cat and all the belongings that they brought along could have crossed over by going down a thousand feet and the, and the type of topography there. Uh, scientists say it, it's next to impossible, next to impossible. But in this little piece of land that juts out, which is right here, there is one location uh, where the topography changes. I'll talk to you about how that changes in a minute. As well, along the entire coastal region, there's really not much place for two million people to be safe from the Pharaoh who is chasing them down. Pharaoh, who is sin and evil in the world. On the heels of that which is good in the world, those who are uh, led by God. Uh, and so they end up camping right here. It's the only place where they could get a whole group of people sort of camping in one zone. Beautiful. It's a provision of God, geographically speaking, for those people. I dare say if my wife was on the trip, she would have been the first one to say, that's the Lord. That's the Lord. It's got to be the Lord. And she would be right. It's the Lord it, um, providing provision there. Now, back to the underwater thing. Look what happens right here where this red dotted line is, right there. It's only... Uh, a, a, like a hundred feet deep, I'm not sure what the actual depth is, but it gets really, really shallow. It is the only place in the Gulf of Aqaba where scientists say this is where the people could have crossed. And together with all the evidence, I'm sort of convinced that this is the spot. Now imagine for a moment to connect to Article 34 of the Belgian Confession and here. Paul is saying, and the article is telling us, that our sacraments demonstrate something that is going on in this event. And what it demonstrates, what they're meant to convey, is that God goes ahead of us. And all of his provisions, which we don't see, are right there even when we don't see them. Paul says, don't be ignorant of that fact. Don't forget. Remember, he stops all his doing language and he says, you are, in a place, you are rooted in a place of remembering. Remember this event where you thought you were toast and all that was wrong in the world thought you, you, know, you thought was going to come upon you and you were going to cave, that it looked like there was no way out because you were standing on the shore and from the sight of things, all you saw was water everywhere and Pharaoh and his henchmen behind you. Isn't that our experience in the world? Martin Luther, in his small piece on prayer, he writes a letter to his barber on prayer. He gets to the second petition uh, about God's kingdom. And he basically writes a story or a prayer that says, Lord, don't let the kingdom that is of this world, that is so heavy on doing and distracting people from your kingdom, change the minds of the few people who call themselves Christians. See, that's the temptation in a doing world, in a world that's full of brokenness and sin and hurt, when all those seminal moments are negative and want to make you give up on the Lord, 
You know people like that? I got family members like that. Something happens in their life, a seminal moment, where they have every just reason, it seems to me, to say, forget it. If this is what God does, then I'm out. Tap out, done. They walk away. And as a pastor, I, I don't have much to say. I mean, I got a lot to say, but on a human level, this is, this is the natural and normal experience. You measure your faith by what God does or what you do. And if things are going well, faith goes well. If the church is making right decisions, your faith goes well. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, the Belgian Confession, Article 34, says this sacrament and that passage and that metaphor is to remind us that it's not about our doing, but it's about this moment when God showed up and did everything for us, provided everything, and we had capacity to do nothing. Nothing. You are, de you are defined as a person and as a church, as a denomination, as Christians around the world by what God does. Remember that. Don't do anything just yet, but remember that. And the water split and the people go through. Look what God did for the rest of your life. Like Deuteronomy 6, when your children sit you down and ask you a question, why do we believe this? You say to them, remember what God did? Remember the signs and wonders that God did? Because this ain't about you. This is about what God does and what God provides. I had a three-hour conversation from a small town in Minnesota all the way uh, to the Minneapolis airport when I was driving, um, speakerphone, uh, with a young woman uh, who was questioning me about believer's baptism, uh, a woman who had been part of dozens and dozens of baptisms that I had done here in this church, and she wanted to know why baptism was important. Now that she was entering into a church scenario where... Uh, they wanted her to be rebaptized. She said, what was all that baptism as an infant stuff about? And I said, ah, oh, 1 Corinthians 10. You were part of something God was doing already from the time you were conceived. And there has been internal workings in your life in such a way that although it, it's hard to see sometimes, God's been molding and shaping you so that you love the Lord on this day. So you could choose to get rebaptized, I guess, if you want. It's not much different than if someone, you know, a hundred years later from the crossing of the Red Sea said to his, his parents, now I wasn't part of that crossing of the Red Sea. I don't really remember it. I want to go swim it because then I'll feel it and I'll know that it's part of who I am. Well, okay, knock yourself out. But that doesn't change what God does. That, didn't that doesn't change what God did. That doesn't change the amazing things that happen internally during the practice of healthy church in the sacraments that you're just not paying attention to. I'm skipping over a, a few things here, but essentially the message of Article 34 during our doing of baptism together is to remember. And as far as sacraments are remembrances, how about we remember this? 
we remember what Christ did on the cross. And we remember the course of seminal moments in our lives where Christ has, the spirit of Christ has been busy working and molding and shaping and changing things in such a way that we are who we've become. If you can internalize that, I think you'll leave here in the, in the appropriate sort of demeanor and sense to tackle the year of ministry. Fundamentally, I think remembering is the uh, primary responsibility, only activity of the church. Here's why I say it. I'll give you an illustration from our church. There was a woman uh, this year, uh, a family this year, whose son fell out of a grocery cart in Canadian Tire. Little guy smacked his head to such a degree that their life is completely different. They have a child with what will be lifelong brain injury. And I wouldn't blame that woman for a second if she said, if this is what God does, I want nothing to do with it. And yet, we have watched that family remember the grace of God to actively remember and look for hints of grace in the struggle. What was God doing when I wasn't even aware? Where is God busy in the healing of my son that surprises me? And she posts everything on Instagram. So the entire congregation is, is able to live into the remembering part of her faith journey. Now, uh, I've had relationships with many of you in this church, and I know some of your seminal moments where those very questions came to mind. How can I believe when? And you know what you needed? You needed people around you to say, don't forget. Don't forget. Look what God has done. I see evidence of him here and there, and I've experienced him in this way. And you tell your story of faith, and you give proof and voice again and again to the action of God, even when you don't feel or see it. In a world that is hyper on the doing and looking for the next great fix, this is your primary responsibility. And every time you have a sacrament, Lord's Supper or baptism, you are called to remember again. That's Calvinism 101 why what we know we call the doctrines of grace. In reform circles, that's what we call it, doctrines of grace. They're not the doctrines of doing. Heck, we don't even begin with T for total depravity. Although some of you talk that way and we have got that stupid flower called tulip. Stupid, it's a good flower. But we use that flower as the thing which defines who we are, which starts with T, which is total depravity. It's all about me and my sin. Oh, it's rotten. Bad person, me. Well, that may be true, and it is true. You're a sinner in need of salvation. But that's not where we begin. Who knows where we begin? Canons of Dort, the other fuzzy, dried-off document in the back of your hymnal. Unconditional election, which is a whole statement that says, this is about him. This is about the very nature of God and how he loves broadly and freely and beautifully, so much so that he sent his only son to die for us. Romans 5, verse 8 even while we were sinners, busy doing stuff, living like the Israelites in revelry and 
talking bad and testing God and pagan worship. While we got busy doing stuff as a way to think about how to manage our way in the world, while we were doing all that, Romans 5 verse 8, Christ died for us. We were lost. We were busy doing stuff, trying to find our way. Christ knew it. He did something. That was, the, that was another crossing of the Red Sea. And the reformers who put that article together put all of this together and said, that's why you need a constant reminder. This Lord's Sacrament, this Lord's Supper, this baptism, these two sacraments, you will practice them again and again and again and again. And remember, when you do, it ain't about you. It's about Him. Help everyone remember that. Take your seminal moments and filter them through what you've heard from 1 Corinthians 10 today. Take, eat, remember, and believe. Little snippet, we're at the end. I meant to say it at some point. You ever notice the old song, Trust and Obey, what comes first? Trust and obey. Trust comes first. That's this act of remembering, maybe to put a new word on it. And the obedience and the doing is second. Uh, go home and read the lyrics or sing it or something on the way home. Uh, I think I'm done now. Uh, amen. I got to say that. <laughs> Two other phrases. Uh, I would call this a holy remembering. A holy remembering. And the companion to a holy remembering is a holy refusal. Refusal to do that which drives your own bus forward, but instead to participate in the ways of God. That's which that which you're remembering. God opens up the seas, walk through them. Okay? Holy remembering and holy refusal. See, you're taking notes, so maybe four words. Holy remembering, holy refusal. Uh, amen again. Okay. Do I pray to close? Yes, I do. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for uh, the work of your church, and we're thankful for individual believers in it. But as thankful as we are and will be for the conduct of this church in this season of ministry, we're rooted somewhere. We're rooted in your acts. And so we choose to remember them this, this morning, Lord. Uh, it's about you. It's not about us. Although we will spend 365 days over the course of this next year doing a lot of stuff, Lord, keep our minds and our feet firmly planted in that which is fundamental, in the foundations of our faith, in active remembering of what you do Lord, we've uh, brought up some uh, sensitive material here this morning, and I'm sure there are people uh, who have had some painful experiences uh, jog in their mind. So can I just pray for these two things? Lord, I pray that your spirit might warmly envelop them in such a way that they are affirmed in the comfort that only God can give. And secondarily, would you raise up people around them who grant them comfort, who grant them the... Um, sort of cognitive to capacity to get back on board and to not give up on that which uh, God so wants to happen in their life, to form and shape them, and to even use these seminal, perhaps negative experiences in their life to be part of that shaping so that when they get to the end with the spiritual eyes that only you can give, they can say, well done, well done. Thank you, God, for what you have done in my life. Lord, we're about to enter into a time of this meal together, and it's a time of communal fellowship and sharing. Lord, bless this body and its community and its growth in this year. Draw them tighter together and try tighter to their community so that uh, we might love the Lord together in increasing fashion. 
Lord, I pray for the leadership of this church, the council and the staff in every form, that uh, they might have the mind of Christ in their leadership, and that together and with the church, they are further sanctified, further made like Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.